When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. So welcome, and thanks again for joining me. Tonight, I have with me Phil Session. Hey, how are you? (laughs) Good, and Jen Peoples. Glad you guys could join me again. I know that the last episodes that we did, people were very excited about it, and I remember that we mentioned maybe doing it again, so we are doing it again. And now that it's getting down to the wire with this 2020 election, it just seemed like a really good thing to do. We also have talked about, I mean, obviously I can't promise what can happen in the future, but we thought that it might be a good idea to do a pre-election and then a post-election with whatever happens. Personally, I just want people to know that we are there. And no matter what happens in this election, just know that there are people who are there and will be there and are not going away. Because I think a lot of people at this point really need that reinforcement. Have you guys seen a lot of that? I've seen tons of it. Yeah, I think that with everything that's going on with the post office and things surrounding mail-in ballots, plus, you know, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. And in spite of what everybody says, it's not going away. It's not getting better. I think there's a lot of anxiety around how are we going to vote, how, how are we going to make this work. So yeah, I think it's helpful to reassure people that no matter what Trump tweets this week, what kind of nonsense happens with the post office, make a plan to vote, vote anyway, and we're going to be there, like you said, no, no matter what happens. Exactly. I think that's that's definitely something I, I would definitely echo. It's, it's a lot of apprehension. There's, there's so much uncertainty around what the future holds, not only the virus side, but also the political lens. There's so many uncertainties barreling down on us and we can kind of see them but don't know where they're going to end up but as Jen said the knowledge that we're going to be there afterwards I acknowledge that and that gives me some some fight there but also getting into the fight and being informed along the way so that I can try to make as much of a difference as I can however small or large that might be yeah no I think that's very important and something people should keep in mind I want to mention something that I spoke to y'all about before we started this episode I accept accepted some charitable ads that are all about getting out the vote, bipartisan groups that are about getting out the vote, informing voters, and I'm including them. I plug them now in every single one of the episodes and as many as I could fill into our prior episodes, and I'm going to put them into this episode. So I hope if you're listening to this pre-election, obviously these ads are time sensitive, so they may not be in here if you listen to this after the election. But if you're listening to this prior to the election, you're going to hear interruptions for these get out the 
vote ads. And I just hope, and I tweeted on Twitter to say that I hope that people will be not annoyed by these messages and these interruptions, but that they will understand that these are public service announcements. They're intended to help people, to get them information, to tell them where they can go, to make sure they're registered, to make sure they have a plan to vote is so important. Make sure that you know how you're going to vote and what's available to you. Get yourself a sample ballot. Know what ID you have to bring with you. Just make sure that you do vote. Make sure that your vote counts. You know, obviously this is for folks who are going to vote. I know that there's some people that just are not going to vote and that's up to them. But for those that are, make sure that you're informed because you don't want to be planning to go out there and vote and then you get there and something blocks you or the polling station is not where it was last year or anything like that. So be sure that you check that you're registered, that you know where the polls are, that you have a plan to either get there or that you know how to mail in vote and that you understand. Don't mess up your rules. There have all these questions right now about if you don't do the mail-in ballot just perfectly in some areas, you might get your vote discounted. So you really don't want that to happen. And just know it's important that you're aware of, of what's going on in your communities. And with that, I did want to stick one more thing in about the positive messaging and the positive reinforcement. There is a video that Andrea Ocasio-Cortez put out, AOC put out, that was super, super supportive. And this was right after the death of RGB was announced. I know that I was totally guilty. My first two posts on Facebook when the death was announced were totally bleak. And it was like one right after the other. And then I was starting on a third where I was just pounding the keyboard and I stopped myself and I thought, there are marginalized community groups that I've been in that I remember after the 2016 election, they had to do head counts. They literally had to go and check on members to make sure that everyone was okay. And not everyone was always okay. And not everybody always came back. And, you know, if I have to put it bluntly, there were people who decided that they were going to check out because they couldn't take four years of what was going to happen. And I don't want to see that again. And so I caught myself and I posted this really positive thing that just said, look, no matter what happens, I have promised before that I will always be here. If you're marginalized, if you need help and you need support and you need an ally, I will do my best. I'm not always going to do it right. And I may screw up and I'm okay if you tell me and we can have a conversation about that, but I will be there and I will be trying my best to be there and support you. And I know that we're all here and that we're all going to support each other. And going forward, we will do what we have to do. We will stay the course and keep fighting for what is right. And so after that, that's when someone sent me this AOC clip and they were just like, hey, I read your post. And I really think that this messaging is sort of similar to what she's talking about, about staying positive and making sure you have a plan and you have a strategy. And so they shared it with me and then I, I saw it and I shared it out. And I'm going to go ahead and put the link to that video in the description in case anybody needs to hear a positive message in this time. Feel free to go and visit that video and see what she has to say. It's super helpful. And that's, I think, as much as I have to say about positive messaging. Does anyone have anything else to add? news of RBG's death came out. I had this this kind of visceral reaction and I almost posted something negative. And then I stepped back and I thought, I personally don't need to go down this path. And we always knew this day was coming. We were all hoping that she would hang on until at least after the first of the year and we have a new Senate. But this was always on the table. 
It's been on the table for the last four years. We knew this day was coming. I feel like we failed her in 2016. She wanted to retire and she wanted the first woman elected president of the United States to appoint her successor. And so I feel like we failed her. All that's done for me now is strengthen my resolve to not fail her in 2020. She's gone, but we can we can basically honor her legacy by showing up to the polls in 2020 in overwhelming numbers. Yeah, when she when she first uh, when I first got that news, I had to check it a few times because pe- people do things. Of course, like it, the internet yeah. is the internet, but it was just one of those things. I made one post, a single post, where I addressed nothing political or anything like that. It was focused just on her as a person, and you know, brought out her you know notorious RBG uh, t- <laughs> moniker that came up. There was a story uh, sometime, was it uh, over a year ago, something like that. She apparently was told about that nickname and had to ask one of uh, the aides or a clerk or something like that as to what that actually <laughs> meant. <laughs> but then she uh, said that she embraced it. Uh, that's what the article said. I can't remember. It's, it's been a while since I've seen that. I, I thought that was so endearing and amazing. But the decisions that, not just talking about her career in ACLU, it just there's so much to that legacy. But I remember even on the the Obergefell v. Hodges case back in 2015. So I was very interested in this. My boss at the time was also interested. She had been with her partner, long-term partner for years, but they weren't married. And I remember when the oral argument happened in April of that year, and I'm waiting for the next day for them to come out so you can actually listen to the whole thing, look at the transcript and all that kind of stuff. And you know, there was uh, the gentleman, uh, Mr. Bursch, that was representing Michigan. He was the special assistant Attorney General for Michigan and arguing basically that the state has a interest in keeping the nuclear family group because they have an interest in keeping children connected to their biological parent and was really resting his hat on that now. And it had been addressed a few times early in the arguments, but there came a point to where Mr. Birch said, I'm I'm quoting from, this is from the, the transcript itself to say that, you know, if you change what the societal meaning of what marriage is and society has already started moving away Away from what we always understood marriage to be, that linkage between kids and their biological mom and dad, the more that link is separated, the more likely it is that when you have an opposite sex couple, that link will not be maintained because it's more it's more adult-centric and it's less child-centric. They had talked about the definition of marriage has changed over time because of course it has. And she came back and said, we changed our idea about marriage is the point that I made earlier. Marriage today is not what it was under the common law tradition under the civil law tradition. Marriage was a relationship of a dominant male to a subordinate female. That ended as a result of the court's decision in 1982. No state was allowed to have such a marriage anymore. Would that be a choice that a state should be allowed to have? And Mr. Birch said no. And she replied back to cling to marriage the way it once was. And when you hear the way that she was advocating and battling back with the attorneys, it gave me a lot of hope. This was before the decision even came out because we didn't know which way it would go. And that fateful day coming when they announced that I was pressing refresh on the Supreme Court page again and again, waiting on <laughs> that decision. And I remember when it came and 
five four, and I read the abstract, and I started crying. My boss started crying. We were a mess. The day was over. Work was over for the day. <laughs> it was game over. And it's just like, if she wasn't there, would we be able to marry? The more recent decision about being able to discriminate against someone based on their uh, gender identity, that one, that one just came up in the court. And it was another one of those things. It was like, if this decision goes wrong, what is my life going to be? How am I going to look at me going to work? You know, what if someone doesn't like me or if I have a boss that has an issue with gay people and that now they have an enshrined right via the Supreme Court to say, I'm going to fire you because of that. And I can literally say that is the reason that I'm firing you because the Supreme Court said I could. And the magnitude of how my life would be changed depending on who's on that court. It is an indescribable thing just from a few cases over the past couple of years. I mean, Alberta, for that was what, 2015. It, it wasn't too long ago at all. And people act like oh, it's been done for ages. And I'm like, oh, bro, that wasn't even a decade. It wasn't even a decade. We and, were that close. And, you know, my wife and I have been together for 20 years now, but we've only been able to be legally married for five. And so, yeah, for us, it's just almost the blink of an eye. All the people that say, hey, I'm, I'm not excited about either candidate, so I'm just not going to vote, or I'm going to vote third party because I don't like Joe Biden or whatever, you know. I want to grab them and shake them and say, don't ever call yourself my ally if this is your attitude, because my marriage is literally on the ballot on November 3rd, because especially with a new Supreme Court pick, somebody could challenge marriage equality again and get it to the Supreme Court. If they agree to take the case, then they will have the votes to overturn marriage equality. And then the Texas ban on marriage, it actually bans marriage, but they'll apply it just as gay marriage. Those state laws, state bans will go back into effect. And then we will once again have a patchwork of laws about who can get married in this country. Where it can be recognized. And it's it's the whole fight all over again, which is what brought it in the first place. You know, someone passing away and being subject to an estate tax when that wouldn't be something you would apply towards a spouse. And that inequality that comes with that, because that's a huge difference on that side. Anyway, I'll get off that soapbox. That's all right. Man, and it was, I mean, it was amazing. I think it's important too to think about the the reasons that Trump has stated that he wants to install a new justice, right? So the things that he right. set out right. They want to overturn Roe v. Wade. And one of the things that hit me about that was that in all the years I've been involved in activism and many of the times that I've had conversations with people, it's been on the topic of abortion. I've always been arguing from the standpoint when it comes to like health and safety of a pregnancy and a gestation is much more dangerous than an abortion. So I'm sitting there thinking about it and I was like, wow, am I going to now have to start arguing that an abortion is safer than a coat hanger and a back alley procedure. The procedures that were done based on not having access to safe legal abortion is just something that I can't believe that we would be going back to. And one of the things that we're going to start to see if that becomes an issue will be the mask coming off of this veneer of this is all about caring for women. And what you're going to see is more of the type of quote pro-life where they say 
say if you're going to kill the baby, then the mother should die because you know she is that vile. Yeah. And so we're going to see the reality start to pop out where they basically have to start defending that they would rather see women die because making it illegal isn't going to stop abortions. It's just going to make them become illegal abortions and unsafe abortions and deadly abortions. When it's a non-consensual pregnancy, it's just like non-consensual sex. The difference between consensual and non-consensual when somebody's using your body is the difference between an act that you agree to and an assault because nobody should be able to use your body and put your life and health at risk for almost a year if you don't consent to that. Well, and, you know, I think you've drawn the analogy to, you know, blood and tissue donation. No one can compel someone to donate blood or tissue, even to their own living child, unless they want to. And, you know, I liken it to if, if you had a specific blood type that was in high demand and someone from the government showed up and said, we're taking you to a donation center, you have to donate blood. And they strapped you down and took a unit of blood from you. And they said, we'll be back in 56 days because we'll need your blood again. <laughs> right. No, no one would stand for that. And, and let me just say, I say that as an avid blood donor. I would never, ever dream of legally compelling them to do that. And in fact, our laws don't. And like you say, even if somebody is your biological parent, they are not compelled by law to do that. It's just something we do not do. And the thing is, I can donate physically. I'm capable of donating blood and I would like to, but I'm excluded as a donor because of some places I live oh, yeah. as a military. Yeah. And so, you know, I can't. I would like to. Even with that, it's like I would voluntarily give my blood, but if someone came and took it and they said, well, we don't care that we can't actually use your blood, we're going to take it from you anyway because you fall into this category of this blood type and all people with this blood type must donate a unit of blood every 56 days. And this is basically what they're doing with people who can become pregnant. They're basically saying because you fall into this category of people, we're going to regulate how, you know, who can use your body. Right, you, you can't, you, you're not allowed to defend yourself against a physical assault, basically. And, yeah. you know, the other side of this coin, which I cannot fathom how people don't grasp this concept, but a lot of pro-life conservatives in this country, and I use pro-life in air quotes here, a lot of them look at what happens in China, you know, with forced abortions, and, you know, they, they rail against that, and they act like being pro-choice is somehow equivalent to that. And my point is that no, this absolute anti-abortion position is actually the equivalent of what happens in China. Because it's like any government that can tell you that you can't have an abortion is a government that can tell you you must have an abortion. Hey, I'm going to stop right here and let's take a quick break and then we will come back. And I want to talk about the other reason that Trump has said he wants to appoint a justice. So let's go ahead and take a break. Okay. Okay, and we're back. I promised that I would bring up the other reason that Trump has talked about wanting to appoint a justice. And it's a little more, well, I don't say it's a little more insidious. It's also insidious. It's about the transition of power. Trump has laid out an argument where he says, if I lose the election, it is therefore rigged, right? So there's no way that Joe Biden can win this election unless there's cheating involved. So the election is stolen unless I win. That's how he starts. That's his premise. And then he says, it's only going to be a fair election if we get rid of these votes that I say we shouldn't count. 
account that I'm going to call fraudulent. We're going to say we get rid of these votes. We get rid of those votes. Then you'll see a transition. And then he stopped himself and said, well, no, there won't be a transition. It'll just be a continuation. So first of all, it's rigged if I don't win. And it's rigged if I can't get rid of the votes I don't like. And I'm going to stay in power. And now he said that he wants to put a justice on the court. And he wants that justice installed so that after the election, he can bring the election results to court and go to SCOTUS, which means that he expects to lose. So he's admitting that he expects that this is going to be a court issue, this election, because he's going to bring it to court. Now, I assume that if he wins the election, he's not going to bring it to court. So what he's saying is, I expect that I'm going to lose this election. When I do, it must be rigged. And as a result, I'm going to take this to court. And I want this new justice to be sitting on the bench when we get to the Supreme Court with this case where I'm going to try to challenge these election results. That's the other reason he wants this person installed. And he says that, hey, if it's a 4-4 decision, that would be a problem. But in in fact, that wouldn't be a problem. It would just mean that the lower court ruling would stand, whatever that is. But he wants a stacked conservative court that is very much leaning toward executive power expansion so that when he comes to SCOTUS, he has more people in his court than not. That's that's the hope, I'm pretty sure. And I don't know what conversations are happening with these justice nominees. I don't know if they have somebody selected. They haven't announced yet, but that doesn't mean that they don't know who they're looking at. That being said, he's also said that violence to stay in office is not off the table, that he is not going to guarantee a peaceful transition of power. So I'm going to put forward that if you win the election, I assume you're not going to get violent. If you win a court ruling when you appeal an election, I assume you're not going to get violent. So the only scenario or circumstance where you're going to get violent to keep your seat is if you lose the election and lose the court ruling and then still say, I'm not leaving. That's pretty much it. There's no other reason that would be pulling out, you know, hey, we need to get violent if I'm winning. It's only if you're losing, right, that you're going to have to fight to keep power. Right now, he's running in part on this law and order platform, which is, I mean, I see this in my head almost not to explode because in 2016, he was signaling to his supporters that if he lost in 2016, it would be because the Democrats rigged it and that his supporters might have a Second Amendment solution to that. So, you know, he was threatening violence via these militias all along. Militias show up at protests that were otherwise peaceful and start some shit. And then the next thing you know, Trump is talking about, oh, well, you know, they're patriots defending their their city, even though they don't live in that city. It's ridiculous. And he's equating property damage with basically killing black people. People's lives. Yeah. And holding that as a higher weight on that side. Because, I mean... For him and for for folks that he leads by the nose with whatever comes out of his mouth, they follow it to the gospel. You know, for them, I could see them coming in that same portion, but he's, he's priming his base the same way he did in 2016. Because if he wins, all of that talk of rigged election, all that slowed up. He did still, what did he say? What, 3 million illegal immigrants voted in California? It was some number like that, some nonsense. Yeah, and he pulled out of nowhere. I guarantee you. California. <laughs> I guarantee you that if ninety percent of those mail-in votes were for Trump, suddenly they would be completely legitimate. Oh, like he he'll shut right up. He'll shut right up. Like on Florida, if Florida goes his way, whether it be on election night or when mail-in ballots are counted, because they've been doing mail-in ballots for a while. Mm-hmm. Down down on that Florida side. And so his rhetoric 
kind of changed a little bit when in regards to Florida. Like, so he tries to target states that he thinks are, are going to go Democratic, kind of attacking those as easy red meat for his base to get them riled up. And so, as Tracy was is talking about earlier, it's it's preparing for that worst case scenario if he does lose election night or when the mail-in ballots are there, then now he has ammunition already in the tank to say it was rigged. This is why people already believe him. You know, whether they're watching Fox News or you know, One America, they're already at the point to where they say, yes, it's going to be rigged. And if he does lose when mail-in ballots are there, they already have that story set in their mind. Their preconceived notion is already set in place. And so he's saying it because he wants to protect himself and he's not worried about the consequences or the violence that may spur because of that, because he will always be insulated from such violence. Like that will never affect him. He can say whatever he wants and he's always insulated from the consequences that may prop up as a result of his actions, whether he's tweeting about Pizzagate or the, you know, the child sex ring and then somebody showed up with a gun. But, oh, well, that wasn't, you know, it wasn't me. I didn't say that. And no, I didn't tell anybody to go do X, Y, Z. So he always tr- keeps this wall between him and his supporters. He'll say everything that he can to get them to cheer his name. But he will never take any credit if they act in a violent way because of what he said in his name. They, he, they will, he will never take responsibility for that. He also right. won't so condemn it. Exactly. Good people on or, both sides. That's what they say. Or if someone calls him out on it, he, he and his apologists trot out and say, oh, it was just a joke. You couldn't tell that was a joke. You know, it's like, first of all, you weren't joking and your supporters didn't take it as a joke. Some of them took it as instructions. He is a showman. He is a TV star personality. That is what he thrives on. And so if he goes to rally after rally and he says a policy decision, as abhorrent as it might be, and it keeps getting cheers and cheers, mm-hmm. you can uh, you can rest assured that he's talking to somebody, Stephen Miller or some other gargoyle in his <laughs> administration to say, well, hey, so, you know, is that even feasible? Like, is there a way that we can get that across? Or even can we do something to make it look as if I did it or something, something that he can tout at his uh, base, even though if it falls through or the court may strike it down and then he can always say, oh, there's the liberal court. You know, he could always push the blame somewhere else, but he kept his word. And when you talk to, when they do interviews with Trump supporters and they do polls, as far as, you know, has Trump kept his word? Because there's a lot of things that he hasn't done. But you ask them, you know, they have their own notions, their preconceived notions, and they've been conditioned in a certain way by his rhetoric and Fox News and that whole ilk to say, yeah, he sure has. He, he built that wall. He sure did. And you know, early on, I think there were lots of people arguing that Trump is like a mastermind of manipulation. And I think you mentioned before, he's just out there owning the libs. And I never really believed he was a mastermind of anything. But I'm absolutely convinced based on what I've seen, all he's doing, he's incredibly ignorant. When it comes to policy or principles or anything, he's pretty much an empty vessel. And he's got people like, you know, Stephen Miller whispering in his ear. 
and you know some of the the worst people on the planet telling him what to do and he's happy to do it because it gets him attention and he goes out there and if he's a master at manipulating anything it's using the ignorance of his followers to his benefit and i think that's what we've seen and it's just appalling how many people are so incredibly ignorant about everything history economics climate, biology, a grasp of reality, it doesn't matter. And Trump's, you know, as you Tracy was mentioning that them Trump playing on people's ignorance. And it's it's not this benign thing that, you know, oh look at this goofball up there. You know, he's talking nonsense. Ugh, what a joke. You know, it's it's not this benign thing. That ignorance can lead to some serious changes and issues. I'm sure that y'all have heard recently about Trump wanting to ban like diversity training. Yeah. Uh, and come, going against the 1619 project by the New York Times on that side, you know, there was Trump tweeted talking about that project and want them wanting to talk about the origins of this country, the fact that it was built on the backs of slaves and how that was really there. Because in a lot of history classes, you get taught about it, but it's glossed over. A lot of it is very, very quick. I mean, history in college is still broken up into pre-Civil War, post-Civil War are your two pieces. Um, of history one history two but that version of events is something that you don't really get a lot of education wise and depending on your state you may get less of it than others i mean texas is a whole beast in itself let alone some of the other southern countries but the fact that he's he can instruct now the department of education so he tweeted department of education is looking at this if so meaning that if school districts you know, adopt some of this curriculum, they will not be funded, you know, and it sounds like, you know, it's an empty threat. You know, he's just being, he doesn't know how the Department of Education works or something like that. By the same token, he's installed somebody in there under Betsy DeVos that has minions under her that can look into what ways they can stop this type of thing from happening, from getting people that are already in a state of ignorance about how our country was formed, how that formation affects the lives of African Americans and other minorities in the country because you hear all the time of, oh, slavery was, you know, that was done back in the 1850s. You should be fine now. Oh, we just had civil rights. Was that the 1960s? It's been, you know, it's been 40, 50 some odd years. You should be fine now. Like, there's no reason that you shouldn't be successful now. As if these holdovers that have happened along the way from slavery, then into Reconstruction and Jim Crow era, going up to the civil rights era, but you still had racism going off of that. I mean, even Trump's father was prosecuted. Was that in the 60s or 70s, if I'm not mistaken, for housing discrimination? Uh, on that side and so it's like these things did not happen so long ago but you have this huge amount of ignorance that's there and now you have Trump in a state of ignorance that's able to demand that folks that are already at a level of ignorance or don't even want to hear about these type of things you know make sure that they don't get exposed to that thing make sure you know we don't have the diversity training it's the fit it's divisive is it's, it's it's divisive you know versus actually learning about what other people may have to go through and so it's not a benign ignorance it can breed much harsher things and somebody i'm sure somebody was whispering in this ear stephen miller for one that name just keeps popping up uh, in my mind but it can have huge ramifications going forward if those kinds of policies keep on 
rolling through. And it's like the tensions that we have now are already great. All the protests that have happened, the Breonna Taylor, good night. That Breonna Taylor situation just happened just, I mean, just days ago. Oh boy, it's something else. And it's like, we're already at this state now. And now we, you have an administration and lots of minions around him that can actually push things through that want to take this to an even worse state of ignorance to make sure that American kids are brought up to think America is the shining country on the hill versus it's a shining country of a hill now, so to speak. But there's a lot of Black underpinnings and we don't want to forget that side so that we don't end up repeating that or not understanding why certain people are in the certain situation that they're in or how it's affecting their families. As you're wondering why that Black family isn't more successful, they had as much opportunity as I had. I worked hard and I'm here. Why aren't they there? can erase that entire history, right, by making sure that people are not literate, Mm -hmm. making laws against teaching somebody who's Black to read or write. Like during that period, basically what happened was voices were stolen and silenced. So they made a society where it was just the the regular cishet white guy who was writing the history, the the powerful, wealthy, landowning elites that were forming, not only forming the nation, but also making sure that everybody else's voice was kept silent. So there was no... was only you know um very little written histories going on women weren't writing a lot either you know you did have women writers but they're not nearly as numerous and don't have nearly the platform and so you have the situation where all of these contributions and all of these histories are just gone erased or else they're hidden in ways that you have to go and look for them what a thing like 1619 does is says we're going to bring that to the forefront and we're going to tell those stories as well and this freaks people out to have to share that narrative and it's not as whitewashed as they would like it. Like you said, it's wonderful to sit in your class and hear about freedom and liberty and we're going to make everybody equal and what great ideas. This is fantastic. But what sucks is when you start to actually realize that these people didn't mean freedom and liberty and equality for Black people and didn't mean freedom and liberty and equality for women and God didn't even have a concept of, you know, you're gay. It's just like that's not even allowed. No trans people, no nothing. It's just so basically you had a situation where history was denied, right? You had one history, one narrow history that was told and the the counter histories were all erased. Well, somebody posted on one of my threads and they were just like, well, there are some issues with 1619 and they put an article up. It's a very long article written by a scholar and he's talking about other scholars and other historians and I sat and I read that whole thing. And at the end of it, I posted back and I said, okay, here's my takeaway. This author is saying that 1619 may overplay the hand of certain aspects of slavery in some instances in history, that maybe they overplay the hand a little, even trying to correct. It also states that the author who contributed that content agrees and is making corrections to their own content currently. It also says that the historians that are most critical of the project are the most guilty of whitewashing in their own historic contexts, and that even given the concerns about 1619, it is superior to the current curriculum of whitewashed history. Because basically what it says is, despite my misgivings, this is a better representation of American history than what we normally teach. And I mean, my thing is, I'm okay if somebody wants to say, well, there are some issues with it. In the end, if we're saying it's an improvement, then I'm for it, right? So if we have a bus that goes on a route, and our ideal would be that it makes 12 stops, and right now it only makes eight, and we can improve it by making it make 10, but we can't get to the 12, you know what? Let's do the 10. 
Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't you improve it? Just because you can't make it perfect, you still, if you can make it better and it's already there, why wouldn't you? And oh my gosh, what a metaphor for the current political climate. <laughs> I did not mean it that way, but yes, it is. I mean, yeah, I just, I don't know. I definitely don't understand why there's such an aversion to having our kids. I mean, you know, Trump has talked about, and there's been several people that, you know, make public statements about, you know, we don't want our kids taught about basically the blemishes of the American past. But it's like, what is so wrong with saying, you know, you know, we're a badass country, but we fucked up in the past. And let's talk about how we fucked up a little bit to make sure we don't we don't do so in the future. You know, what's mm-hmm. what's so wrong with that portion? Because otherwise you have a whole set of people that do not and cannot put themselves in the frame of mind of people that may have been hurt by that history and why things are the way they are. I mean, like, you know, how many people know about the war on drugs and how it was targeted towards, you know, crack cocaine, we're going to target with harsher sentences, and we're going to flood these urban cities with police to make more arrests versus powder cocaine that was more accepted in the higher socioeconomic circles. We're not going to look at that as the same way, but this crack, we're going to do so because that's predominantly held in which communities? Oh, well, those that are less likely to vote for those in power at that time. And then you funnel oh, yeah, those people it. into a prison where you restart up your slave labor. Right. And, and then when they get out, you say you can't vote. Right. So like, wow, that's like quite the system for keeping white people in power. Yeah. Right. But like, then you hear all the on... time, it's like, where's all the, where's all the fathers? Where, where are those fathers? And it's like, well, this whole set of generation over decades, you know, you targeted this community and now you want to come after the mothers who are raging, raising children by themselves and say, well, that's an unfit mother. And, you know, I don't know, where, where's the husband? Where's the husband at? You know, that type of thing. And that's just, that's just a welfare queen and everything else. You have all these pieces of context and a whole group of people that are completely ignorant about all of that history and how it affects the society that they see today. And they can't wrap their minds around it and get misinformed by another ignorant person in Trump or another news outlet that can prey on that ignorance and say, well, this is the actual reason. Give you some, feed them some BS. And now they regurgitate it like, oh, that makes sense. It's obviously because they're lazy. If they didn't want to be poor like that, if they didn't want to be in that community, you know, they would pull themselves up by the bootstraps and keep on rocking and rolling. You know, and they're so susceptible to that. And it it comes full circle with the society that we have today and what uh, we want and people's aversion to it changing, which is why like, when people fight against the 1619 Project, like Tracy said, it totally may be some things that are wrong and things that, you know, (laughs) we can use some tweaking as all curriculum does. You have to review it over time. Of course, that's the way that it goes as we get a better understanding. But to say that we don't want it because it shines a larger light on the blemishes of this country and, you know, it's way to the shining beacon on the hill is washing away a huge amount of history of contributions of people that have suffered and have had their backs broken literally and figuratively over time to get this country to where it was in the first place and are still dealing with those aftershocks. You know, talking about Native Americans, African, there, there's just so many stories that are there that are just not in the minds of people. And without them, they have no context for the anger that minority groups feel. They really don't have that basis to well, even yeah. form to why that makes sense this is like trump's this is this is his mo though right so be shitty but then ask for praise expect praise and and claim you're being robbed Mm -hmm. if you don't get it but don't do anything to really deserve it or do things that are counterproductive 
uh, and then expect it, right? Like, like make a peace agreement and leave the Palestinians off the table and then say, nobody's praising me for this wonderful peace agreement. It's like yeah. it, they, the countries that signed it weren't at war. And the, and the people who are the subject of the humanitarian violations, like rights violations, weren't even represented. So what is this? This is just a self-congratulatory, let's get all the wealthy people that are our allies together and, you know, shake hands and everybody have a glass, you know, we'll all toast our great peace agreement. But he wants, now he wants the peace prize, right? I should have the peace prize. I'm being robbed. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you've got to actually do something. And when it comes to the 1619 thing, he's pissed off because he's just like, they're telling us we can't be proud of our country. And I'm like, if you want to be proud of the country, then you need to do something Right. That makes people proud of the country. And one thing you could do, just a thought, is face your racist history, figure out that that ties into the racist present, that there are, you can follow that line of dots all the way to today to see what's going on, and then actually address it. Because if you did, that would be something to be proud of. Times in recent history when I've been proud of my country, it's been when Barack Obama signed the Affordable Care Act, you know, and they're up there and, and Joe Biden, not realizing he was on a hot mic, leans over and says, this is a big fucking deal. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yes, it is. You just provided a way for millions of Americans to get insurance who never could get insurance before. You've eliminated pre-existing condition clause and forced oh. insurance providers oh. I want to make sh- I want to make sure that people understand this pre-existing condition argument, right? It's huge. Because what happens is you'll hear people that support ACA say they're going to eliminate pre-existing conditions. They're at the, arguing before the courts right now, trying to get it ACA kicked down. They have nothing to replace it. They are going to get rid of pre-existing conditions being acceptable to insurance companies. And the Republicans are saying, no, we're not. We're going to make sure that those can't be rejected. When you look at those plans, they do, in fact, Fact, want to say that the insurance companies cannot reject you for a pre-existing condition. But what they also say is that these insurance companies can then rate your policy based on that pre-existing condition and raise your rates for that. So what happened, right. and then when you can't afford insurance and you are like, I have to pay my rent for my insurance, so I can't have health insurance because I got to pay my rent or buy food. Then they say, well, that's people having choices. That's freedom. That's liberty. You have the freedom to yeah. choose whether or not you want to spend money on health insurance. So this is what they mean by we're going to make sure that pre-existing conditions can't be rejected, right? So basically they're going to price you out of the market and then say that it's giving you the freedom to not have to buy cumbersome insurance if you don't want it, if you would rather buy food. that, that That never gets the focus that it truly deserves. I mean, the, the, the focus on what, you know, your freedom to choose. And it's just like, well, what do I have to choose from? Like, what I have to choose from is what my employer decides to provide. And that's kind of it. If I don't have that, I really don't have much of a choice. And even even in that, I have to make the decision, like when I when I need some more of uh, my medicine. And so this medicine, it, it lasts maybe two to three weeks. I will oscillate what plan I get based on how much of this medicine I have in stock left. I will jump to the higher plan because now I can get this medicine for $4 a refill. I will hound doctors. I will do teledoc to get more prescriptions, more and more and more to make sure that I can have this uh, this cream to make sure that I could uh, have it because without it, 
I think the current price right now is about $135 per tube. The tube is like, is extremely small. It's right. maybe two inches. So it does not last too long. But if I go with a cheaper plan, I'm stuck paying that price because that cheaper plan says, well, we're not going to pay anything until you hit your deductible of several thousand dollars. And so, you know, my freedom, it just consists of, you know, what do I have on supply? What do I need? How much am I going to need for my day to day for rent and everything else? And so the choice gets very much constrained. And so all of, for all of my freedoms that I have, I don't have too much choice. And I'll, I'll say one last thing to kind of harken back to what Tracy said a little bit later, uh, a little bit before about being proud of your country. You well, know, was- people talk about patriotism, uh, patriotism and being proud. And, you know, Trump boasts about that a lot, you know, make America great again. You know, that, that's the whole premise behind it. But what comes along with that is a conversation about how proud can you be of your country when you don't actually know it. When you know this idealized version of it and that's what you're proud of and you threw all the other pieces away, what exactly are you being proud of? Because what you know is not representative of the country itself. It's this idealized version that you've made in your head. And a lot of this rejection of uncomfortable history is because we've prioritized white, cishet, male, Christian comfort over the experiences of every other demographic in this country. So, Tracy, you were talking about all of the women writers, all the minority writers who were silenced over the years. And I think back to James Baldwin. If you read anything he wrote today, it's still very difficult sometimes to get through some of his work because he's telling real stories, you know, and and he's coming from a place of real anger. People don't know how to deal with that. And I, I think that we still, as a nation, have to confront that. I saw a great conversation where people were talking about a system of particular system of government. One person asked another person, when has this system ever been implemented anywhere in the world successfully? And the other person said, well, in the early part of the foundation of the United States. And I thought, wow, that is a myopic view of successful governance. So who exactly did this work for? Because women were chattel, black people were slaves, immigrants were basically worked to death. And if they were allowed to even come in, prejudice and, and like horrible working conditions and you know just awful abuses. And there was no health care, right? Like, right? As far as government, to say this is when it was really, you know, that was a great example of how it worked. Every other experience is just erased. And they're viewing this as people like me had these opportunities. And so that was a great time. And it's like, oh, oh, dude, open your eyes. Well, Do you know how you sound to anybody who's not like you, who was who lives here now and well, is dealing and, with it? And the thing about it is it wasn't even that people like him had great opportunities because most people that looked like him were like him would not have had those opportunities. Yeah, they were living hard lives, subsistence farming or working in a mine or trying to pan for gold out in California while they were fighting to uh, take uh, Native Americans off their land. (laughs) And and that's the other thing. So we had these genocides, just so people know, there are tribes that no longer exist today. Well, convincing people like that, that there was a system that worked for them and that all of these other undesirables were at the bottom where they belong because they're just lazy or worthless people, right? That was the genius of the post-Reconstruction bullshit that everybody was sold, especially in the South, 
convincing dirt poor white people that you're one of us, the oligarchs were telling them this, you're one of us because you're not black. So as long as you're white, it doesn't matter how poor you are, how destitute you are, you're still better than a black person. And so you should affiliate yourself with us. They preyed on the ignorance of these poor white people who, because of their racism and their ignorance, they went along with the rich white people. And the rich white people never had their interests at heart. And in fact, they were more logically aligned with the interests of the recently you know, liberated slaves. And they should have been aligned with that. But you know, that would have been a huge threat to the rich white people and their standing. And so it was a, you know, it was a deliberate tactic to prey on the ignorance of people. And it worked then and it's still working today. It got them to go along with the loophole in the 13th Amendment to say people were free unless they were duly incarcerated was was the rule. And so all around, you know, all these petty crimes would be put against these very recently liberated black folks in order to get them to a state of slavery again. But it's legal now because they're incarcerated. And so the 13th Amendment doesn't apply because of this. They, they committed a crime, whatever crime that was. I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that preying off that ignorance, you can get this other population of poor whites that were around, you know, witnessing what was going on. They definitely weren't a part of the ruling class because they didn't have the money. They didn't have the wealth of the land mm-hmm. to be a part of that. But you know, seeing these struggles that were there and seeing what was happening, you can get this population to be on your side of this ruling class of saying that, you know, what we're doing is right because you are not black. You know, these are animal, these these are savages, and they peppered that out there again and again, that these people need to be locked up. They're going to, you know, rape your wife and children. And that, you know, it was the whole big to-do. And using the ignorance against this other population of poor whites that could potentially ally with another marginalized group of folks around there is just a method of control. And they were able to leverage that against this huge population to not rise up to interrupt the lives of the wealthy whites and landowners in the area, essentially. And once they had poor white people buying this bullshit, then they didn't have to worry about, you know, essentially a peasant uprising mm-hmm. that would threaten their wealth and position. And and you've been sold on the idea that if you work hard, you too can be rich. That hard work, you know, this whole Protestant work ethic, which is such bullshit. I mean, it has has been for a while, but it's still around. It is still around. This concludes part one of my pre-election conversation with Jen Peoples and Phil Session. Join us again next week for part two, where we'll be discussing Breonna Taylor and other cases of injustice that have fueled the BLM movement. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.